Welcome back um, to many of you. You don't know how it feels to stand up here and to see so many of your faces for the first time in over a year and a half for some of you. And so welcome back uh, to many of you. I pray that today would be an energizing time when in the Lord, uh, you get to feel again what it feels like to be in the temple of God, worshiping with the assembly. Um, this is what we were meant to do. So welcome back. Congratulations uh, to the college graduates. For our word today, we're going to go to Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. College graduates, please hear that again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. This summer, uh, we're going to slow down together and we're going to look at the gospel together. Not the gospels of the New Testament, but the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're calling this series Gospel Clarity because the gospel in many ways is this message that is like a jewel or a diamond that you can pick up and you can look at from various different angles, different emphases, different parts of the gospel message. And with every part of the gospel message that you look at, every side, every angle that you look at it, you appreciate the gospel more. And so this summer, what I want to do is I want to pick up the gospel jewel and look at it from various different angles each week, one angle per week, one side a week, and look at the gospel together. Um, the gospel is this good news of what God has done to save us as sinners because we could not save ourselves. That's why the gospel we call good news, because it's what God has done for us. It's not what you have to do. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do this. That's not the gospel. That doesn't sound like good news to me. Does that sound like good news to you? No. The good news is God has already done this. And so come in here. He already did it. It's good news. And that's why uh, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are many different sides to that that we're going to look at together. The best um, diamond that you could buy, I know that's some have either just come out of buying a diamond for your fiancé, or some of you are actually looking right now for a diamond for your fiancé. Some of you guys are sitting here right now. And you know that the best diamond that you could find in terms of clarity is FL, flawless. Uh, it's very difficult to find, really expensive if you want to buy it, but that's what uh, the highest level of clarity is, FL, flawless. This summer, I want to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you look at every single angle and side of the gospel, you'll see how flawless the gospel is. You'll see how perfect the integrity of the gospel. But in order for you to actually be convicted of that, you have to look at every side. You have to understand what God has done. And today we're going to start uh, with election or predestination, which is 
one of the first sides of the gospel that we have to understand. And I know that predestination or election, and I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably. I know that that idea, um, it's an idea that maybe you've heard and you learned of, but it's something that you either really didn't understand or it's something that you've debated. Maybe you've debated whether we are predestined. Uh, Maybe you've debated it with someone else, but maybe more often you've debated it inside of your own heart. Am I predestined? Am I elect? That's probably something that you've wrestled with. Today, what I want to do is I want to look at this side of the gospel, predestination, untangle all the issues that we have with it. We actually have two big problems with predestination, and I want to talk about those two problems. And as we untangle those two problems, we'll just see how flawless God has made the good news of Jesus Christ for you and for this week, how it's going to impact you and your life. Let's all bow our heads and pray together. Ask God's help. Father, I'm going to attempt to talk about something that happened that I never saw, something that happened that we weren't there when you did it, what Calvin calls divine wisdom. And so for men and women to try to understand in some ways we can't, we just can't, We have to humbly ask your spirit, please convict our hearts of things that I cannot convince people of, truths that I I can't explain comprehensively, something that we are to receive, not to argue. So Father, we pray that our hearts will be bowed and that your spirit would come and speak and make sense to us things that we cannot explain. Father, we bow before your word because it's uh, from your lips. I pray that it would change the way we live Monday, tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, What is predestination? Uh, What is election? Um, Let me just talk about that a little bit. And I have a definition that I want to show you. Um, And I hope that it's simple and clear, but I'll I'll pull it apart from you. And, And this is what predestination or election is. Um, Here it is. It means that God, if we could put up the definition here, it means that God in all eternity chose sinners, that's us, who he would give mercy by connecting them to the work and person of Jesus Christ. Let me take that apart. God in all eternity, apart from time, apart from time, he made this decision all by himself in the Trinity. He made a decision to choose sinners, people who deserve judgment and death, choose people who deserve judgment and death and punishment, people who rightly deserve that punishment to give mercy to, mercy to. Not that they would earn it, but that he would give mercy to them by connecting them to the work of Jesus Christ. Because the work of Jesus Christ is what makes people worthy and we are not worthy, he made a choice before all eternity to connect people who did not deserve it to the one who did deserve it so that they could be saved. In Ephesians 1, Paul says it like this. In Ephesians 1, he says, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let me say that again. He chose us in him, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Let that sink in. In love he predestined us. Those are two concepts we normally don't talk about together. But in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Election is this idea that he chose us even before he made us. He loved us before he even made us. It's pretty crazy, this idea of election, that he chose and loved and adopted and cared for you and thought about you in your life and your salvation and your relationship with him before you even existed. That's the kind of love that's very difficult for people like you and I to understand. But that's what he says. He chose us before the foundations of the world. Now, how could he do that? How could he choose people to save before he even saw what they were like? You see, if our salvation is earned by us, by whether you are good, by whether how determined you are in the faith, by how much you believe in Jesus Christ, if that's how you got saved, then he would have to wait and see how you did. Let's wait and see. If they have faith, how much faith? Let's see if they go to church. Let's see if they don't go to church. He would have to wait and see how you did, if that's how you got saved. But what if your salvation was not due to anything you did? What if your salvation would, was due because of some, something else that someone else did, name one else did, namely the person of Jesus Christ? Then he can actually choose individuals to save even before they did anything at all. The idea of predestination is a side of the gospel that we have to see because it shows us just how gracious God is and just how much our salvation does not depend on what we do. You hold up the diamond of the gospel and you see that side and you realize, wow, it's really true that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace. It's an important side of the gospel. It's a salvation that's radically divorced from your works. And today, um, we want to try to understand it, but more importantly, we want to receive it. And it's hard to receive because of two issues we have with it. Um, and you might not believe that these are the two issues that you have with it, but it is. The two issues that we have with it um, comes in this one phrase. We have an issue with a gracious God. We have an issue with a gracious God. And you might be thinking, I don't have a problem with, sorry, I don't know what, what's making the noise. Um, you know, you might be saying, I don't have a problem with a gracious God. I have a problem with a judgmental God, a scary God, uh, an overbearing God. But I want to actually show you that you actually do have a problem with a gracious God. And let me parse that out for you to show you why we have a problem with a gracious God. First, to take that in reverse, we have a problem with the idea of God in the first place, you see, the idea of election tells us that God all by himself made a decision for your future. All by himself made a decision to save you, to come and to give you mercy. 
and kindness and election. And he, all by himself, had the authority and decision to do that in the first place, and he had every right, and he was absolutely righteous in doing it. And we don't like that. There's something about that that we don't like. He should have consulted with us first. He should have explained it to us, talked with us, so at least it makes sense to us, so that we can explain it and we could sign off on it. I need to co-sign my own destination. There's something about a God who actually has full authority over you that we have a really big problem with. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called God and the Dock. The dock is where the person, the defendant, goes to defend himself. And actually, we belong in the dock before God because God is justice, God is judge. We belong in the dock, making an excuse for ourselves. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock, which is kind of crazy. Why should God be in the dock? Why should God have to defend himself? He's God. But he said that the way that we treat God oftentimes is like a peer and actually oftentimes as a subservient being. We put him in the dock and we say, God, we don't like predestination. Explain yourself. Defend yourself. And he wrote a book called God in the Dock. And I want us to see that one of the issues we have with election, this side of the gospel, is that we actually have a problem with him being God and us not being God. And it's not an intellectual issue at the core of it. Your problem with it is that you have a heart issue with it. You have a rebellion issue with it. You don't want God to be God over you. You want to be God. You would have liked to make that decision. You would have liked to have been consulted about predestination, but you weren't. And so we have a heart issue with election. That's our problem. Paul, in Romans 9, we read Romans 8, but in Romans 9, he actually anticipates this in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, uh, verse 14, he says this. What shall we say then? He's talking about election. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Because there's a part of us that says, that's not fair. That's not fair. And so Paul says, you think it's unfair? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. And he continues in verse 19 by saying, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? This is a harsh, difficult thing for rebellious people to hear. Paul anticipates that we're going to say, not fair. I should have had been consulted. I should have had a part in predestination's decision. And Paul says, why? Why should you have been consulted? Don't you know that you are the clay and that God is the potter? Does not the potter have every right to make the clay in the form that he desires? Does the clay scream back at the potter, you had no right to make me like this? a hard thing for us to hear in our heart, not for our intellect. It makes sense to us intellectually, doesn't it? But it makes a very, very difficult thing to swallow for our hearts, to have a real God. A lot of us have not wrestled with an idea of an actual God. 
Many of us, we have an idea of God that's kind of more like Santa Claus than he is like the almighty king of the universe. And that's why when we talk about election, it's really hard because Santa Claus shouldn't do this. He shouldn't have predestined us, selected us. Our rebellious hearts have a hard time with this, and that's why we debate it. We debate it with each other. We debate it within ourselves. It's clay pots arguing of whether the potter has a right to do this. John Calvin, he wrote about this in his Institutes. Um, some of you have heard of John Calvin. He was a, um, a 17th century reformer. Um, a lot of people think that Calvin made up predestination. Um, he really didn't. Uh, it wasn't his main thing either. It was actually at the end of his Institutes, not at the beginning, but he wrote this. And this is something that I think that we should really receive. He says, first, when they delve into the question of predestination, they must remember that they are probing the depths of divine wisdom. Do you hear that? It's something that we are looking into from all eternity. It's not for us to fully understand. They have to understand that they're probing into the depths of divine wisdom. And if they dash ahead too boldly, instead of satisfying their curiosity, they will enter a maze with no exits. It's not right that men should pry into things which the Lord has chosen to conceal in himself or gaze at the glorious eternal wisdom which he wants us to worship, not understand. It takes a lot of humility to swallow that, that there are things that we as human beings cannot understand from God's concealed wisdom. That's very tough for educated people like you and me to swallow. But there's something about divine wisdom that is concealed. You will not understand everything about God. You will not know every reason why he did everything. And that we have an issue with. But we have to understand that it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue that we have before God. It's this issue of understanding that God is God. Um, Right now, we have my brother-in-law's dog. Um, we're dog-sitting for about a month because he moved to California, and he has a big dog. It's a pit bull mix. It's a big dog, and, and we're taking care of this thing for a month. Right? I have two, these two little kids, and uh, it's, a, it's, you know, she's a good dog, but um, my youngest daughter, Sophia, she's two, about to turn three. When Lupe first came over, her name is Lupe, um, Lupe came over and started staying at our place. Big dog, scary-looking dog, right? Like one of these, like, uh, Cujo-looking kind of dogs, right? Um, staying at our house, and when she first saw Lupe, she was really scared of Lupe. I mean, rightfully so, right? Big dog, scary-looking, loud when she barks. But then over time, she got really comfortable with Lupe. And now, if you go over, come over our house, Sophia will treat Lupe like a stuffed animal. She'll play with her ears and bend it backwards. She'll lay on top of Lupe. She'll try to open her mouth. Like these crazy things that she tries to do. But Lupe's a really good dog, and so she'll let her do it. Um, but like for Sophia, she kind of treats her like a stuffed animal. But when she does it, as a father, I'm watching very carefully. Because I know that she's not a stuffed animal. I know that she's a pit bull. C.S. Lewis is trying to explain God to children. 
Lucy is in Narnia, and she asks, Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver, so you tell me about Aslan. He's a lion. Is he safe? Is he safe? Can I bend his ears backwards, and can I lift up his teeth? Can I stick my head in his mouth, and can I treat him like a stuffed animal? Is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? What are you talking about? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver and I are telling you? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think it's a brilliant way to try to explain to children that God is not a stuffed animal or Santa Claus, but he is God Almighty, but he loves you. But we ought not to treat him like a teddy bear. It's a difficult thing even for grown-ups to understand, isn't it? Because we talk about election and there's something about us. He's not allowed to do that. Who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? It's a difficulty we have with election. But it's a heart issue, brothers and sisters, not an intellect issue. The second issue that we have with God and his election is actually grace. We have an issue with grace, the way grace functions. And you might think, I have zero problem with grace. I have zero problem with grace or mercy. I have a problem with judgment. But actually, I want to tell you that you do have a problem with God exercising grace and mercy because he does it at his own discretion. That's how grace and mercy has to function. Grace and mercy can't be compelled. If it's compelled, then it's not grace. But we want God to be compelled to give grace to everyone. But then once you do that, it's compulsion. It's not mercy. But it's not fair. If he's going to be gracious, then he's got to be gracious to everyone, we think. But my brothers and sisters, grace and mercy can never fall under compulsion. It must be out of his own pleasure and desire in order for it to be grace. And you have a problem with that. We have a problem with that. Again, because we want God under our control. But he says that he shows grace to whom he wants to show grace because that's what grace is. That's our second issue with election is that God's grace is completely unearned, completely undeserved, and detached from anything that we do. Some people in history have kind of wrestled with this fairness thing and saw that well, this is really hard to come to terms with. And so you know what they did? They said, you know what? This is how it works. They made up this idea of, of prevenient grace or, or foreseen grace, and this is how it works. He says, well, what God has done is that in all eternity, he looked forward to, um, I'm seeing John here, he looks forward to John's life and looks at what John's going to do. Is John going to have faith? Is John going to go to church? Is John going to be a good father? Is he going to believe in Jesus Christ? And then what he does is he goes back to eternity and says, I saw what John's going to be like. It's going to work out. And so I'm going to save him. Um, that's what Armenian th theology says, that God looks forward to see how it's going to go, and then he says, okay, I'll choose him. He looks forward to see how it's going to go and say, you know, I'm not going to choose him. That's um, changing what grace is. Anytime you add anything to God's decision to save you, 
It's no longer grace. It's the same thing as salvation by works. He's just looking forward to that works instead of waiting to see it happen. But it's still salvation by works. He's just looking forward to it. You see how hard it is to receive salvation by grace? It's really difficult. We've never seen it anywhere else in the world. Real grace, full grace, salvation by grace, the good news of Jesus Christ. But that is what God has done. I love the story about Lazarus because I think that it illustrates so perfectly what Paul says here in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus who's been dead for multiple days. His body is starting to rot and he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes to life. This idea of call, those whom he predestined, he called. And that calling, all the power to that calling in your life comes from Jesus, not from Lazarus. Right? I love that picture because Lazarus can't do anything. He can't save himself. But it's through God's grace that Lazarus arises and comes forth. A lot of you have wondered the question, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm saved? How do I even know? I mean, I believe in Jesus, but what if it turns out later that I don't believe in Jesus? First thing that I would say to you is, remember what Calvin said. This is not something to be debated in your heart. This is something to be received. But secondly, I would say to you, what if Lazarus's toe moved? What if Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and you see his pinky toe move, right? After three days dead. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And then what if his arm starts to shake and he starts to move? But what if it's just his toe? Has the calling taken effect? Absolutely. If you have, in Jesus' words, not a toe, but a mustard seed of faith. You can move mountains. Why? Because you have the calling of the true and living God in your life. Can dead people move toes? Neither can those who are spiritually dead have a spot of faith. If you could find a mustard seed of faith, my brother, my sister, you are a child of the living God. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He has an amazing plan for you. You are included in those whom he predestined, he has called. And if you follow that chain, it will lead you to glory. This is what election is. It's the most gracious salvation in any religion. When I was coming to faith, this is what I realized, that this faith is totally different from the others. Because every other religion is by works in some way. But when you hold up the diamond of the gospel and you look at the side of election, you realize, wow, this religion is totally not by works. He chose us before the foundations of the world. He moves toes for dead people. This gospel is truly by grace. That's something that we need to glory in with this doctrine. 
I know it's an intimidating doctrine, but that's something we need to glory in. Don't you see how it protects God's grace? Don't you see how it protects that your salvation is by grace and not works? It's not because you've renounced your desires and followed the eightfold path of Gautama Buddha. It's not because you submitted yourself under the Torah and you were born a Jew. It's not because you heard the words of Muhammad and submitted yourself to Allah as a good Muslim. It's not because you took the sacraments of the church and became a good Catholic in good standing. It's totally by grace. Isn't that beautiful? It's an intimidating doctrine, but when we receive it well, it's supposed to fortify our faith in Jesus Christ. He did it because in love he predestined you, not in judgment, not by your merit. Now, here are three things that I want to close with. Implications for how is it going to change your life this week. Number one, if predestination, if election is real, then there will be a true humility in your life. We are saved according to election. We are saved apart from your successes. Some of you have some great successes in this room and online. You have some great successes in your life but you were saved because of none of them. College graduates, some of you will have some great successes in your life, great victories and wins. You will be saved because of none of those things. There is no such thing in election as a self-made man or a self-made woman. That was a big discussion with Kylie Jenner, wasn't it? When she became the youngest billionaire in history. Is she self-made? Did she really self-make herself into a billionaire, youngest in history, or was she born into a rich, famous family? I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. Um, I don't really know her very well. But um, I do know that for us who live here in a success-driven, career-driven, northeast culture, election has to touch you. And election has to say to you, you're not saved because of your successes. You're not saved because what you have done. John Calvin, he writes in the Institutes, after that sentence I read to you before, John Calvin writes this. They who try to keep people from the doctrine, he's talking about election, they who try to keep people from the doctrine are unfair to God and man alike because there's no other way to humble us or to make us realize what we owe him. Do you hear that? He says, unless you understand election, you'll never truly be humble because you'll always think you had something to do with your salvation. You had a contribution. You had an ownership stake in your own election. You'll always think that. He says, that's why I don't keep the, the truth of election from people. I know it's... It's hard, it's difficult to understand, but John Calvin tells us, don't keep it from your church because election will show true humility in the hearts of real Christians. You see, the idea of election should really humble you and to show you deeply that you didn't save yourself, but not humble you in the sense only to make you feel small, but humble you in the sense to make you feel free. 
my brothers, my sisters, my college graduates of MU, you don't need to save yourself. You don't need to. Isn't that what election tells you? It is finished. It has been finished for a really long time. Even though you feel like you have to get out there into the real world and make a name for yourself, an identity for yourself, and a reason for your righteousness and existence. You don't need to. It's done. From all eternity, he predestined you in love. He saw you, he loved you, and he said, he is mine, she is mine. And you can rest and settle in that, and you don't have to live an anxious week this week of trying to prove your own worth. Humility and freedom. Secondly, what it means for us is that it should give us great confidence. Great confidence. Can I read you from John 10? I love this passage in John 10. Jesus is talking about um, our salvation and our security with God. And in John 10, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Have you ever seen a father walk a two, three-year-old across the streets in a busy street? And that two, three-year-old, and I know this because I have one of them, they're squirming, they're trying everything possible to get their hand out of your hand, and they're trying to run across the street and trying to commit suicide by running towards cars. It happens. Why they do it, I have no idea, but they do do it. But you're walking across the street, and you're seeing a dad walk across the street with a little child. Who is securing the safety of that child? Where's the real security of that relationship coming from? Is it the kid who's holding the dad? Is it the strength of this relationship, this strength of this hand that's actually securing it? It's the father who's reaching down. His hand is securing the child. Jesus says, no one's going to snatch them out of my father's hand. My father is greater than all. You're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. I know you have moments in your life that you cringe about. When you think about what you did in your past, when you think about what you said, I know you have cringeworthy moments in your past. You, it cannot snatch you out of the Father's hand. I know you have things that you hide from people, that you're ashamed of, and you're ashamed because it makes you feel like you're a hypocrite if you call yourself a Christian. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Not even you, not even those cringeworthy moments. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My brothers, my sisters, this should be always a grounds for great confidence for you. This week may be that week where you develop a new cringeworthy moment in your life. Something that you're going to regret that you said. Something that you regret that you did. But this doctrine of election, this side of the gospel diamond, needs to prove to you that you can have confidence always, despite how bad your marriage is at this moment. Despite how far your kids have strayed from your faith. Despite all the things that are happening to you in work. 
No one will snatch you from the Father's hand. You know, and you know what that means? That means he will always be for you and never be against you. College graduates, I know that you're graduating into a lot of uncertainty. In the midst of COVID, it's a crazy time to graduate. There's a lot of uncertainty, but no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. That means that no matter what you experience in the job market, no matter what you experience in the next year, you have to remember that he was always for you and never against you. And he'll never snatch you. Nothing will out of his hand. We have to believe that. No matter how sick your parents are, no matter how difficult of a time you've had conceiving, he's not against you. He's not against you. He's never been against you from all eternity. That's what election tells us. That should make a difference to your heart tomorrow. It's not just an esoteric truth. It's something that should change the way you live. It should give you strength. John Calvin says, look, this is not a truth that we should debate, but we should just start living in it. I love the story of the blind man that Jesus healed. Jesus healed this blind man, and the Pharisees are arguing whether Jesus had the right to do it or not. And they're arguing with each other. Should he have done it? Is it right that he did it or wrong that he did it? They even bring his parents into it. They bring his mom and dad into the conversation and say, what did you see? What do you think? And the Pharisees are arguing about it. Should he have done it? Should Jesus have healed him or not? And they're arguing, and then they finally bring this man in because the mom says, I don't know. He's a grown guy. Ask him what happened. And then, so they bring in the blind man as they're arguing about should, he, should Jesus have done this or not. And they ask him what happened. And he begins to explain. And they're arguing. And what does the guy finally say? He said, look, you guys are the theologians. If you guys want to argue, go ahead. But all I know is this. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. If you guys want to keep arguing about it, if you guys want to keep debating about it, go ahead. But I can, I can see. I can see. And I'm going to live in this now. So you guys can argue about it while I live in the power of what happened. My brothers and my sisters, what use do you have trying to look behind the curtain of divine wisdom to see if you were elect or not? How are you going to know but if you have mustard seed faith, if you feel the toes of your spirit moving, don't debate about it in your heart. Live in it. You were blind, but now you see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Live in it. That's what it's there for. Not to argue about, but to live in the power of that certainty, that humility, that confidence of election. Lastly, quickly, worship. It should make us, it should make us worship. If nothing else, it should make us worship because the truth is that he was incredibly gracious from all eternity. And so your heart is secured and that you ought to be singing praise to the God who saved you. You know, Christianity has taken root in a lot of different nations in the world, but every place that the gospel takes root, there is always singing. There's always singing. 
Christians are always singing in whatever, in whatever race, language, tribe, or tongue because Christianity is the gospel and we were saved. And so we lift up our hands to praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Do you see that side of the gospel? Have you lost your heart of worship during COVID? Turn the gospel around and look at election and see how much you do need to worship God because of what he's done for you in all eternity. Don't you have always a reason to sing? Don't you always have a reason to lift your hands in praise? Don't you have a reason to sneak away during your workday and to say, thank you, Jesus? Mosaic, discover the beauty of the gospel this summer. And the first side I really ask you to discover is the beauty and power of election. Don't argue about it, but live in its power and see what it does for you. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we, um, we come to you and we confess that we've shied away from this doctrine. It was kind of intimidating for us. Father, I pray that for those who have heard your word, that something that was intimidating will now be precious. Something that seemed esoteric would be of practical use to bring deep humility and freedom. We don't have to save ourselves. What good news and also great confidence for us that because of election, you're never against us and you're always for us no matter what. So Father, I pray that that would give us great confidence and I pray that Lord, that you would well up in us, well up in us a heart of praise and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray.